Welcome to the Annie. The ST628 Paediatric Study Day. The ST628 Paediatric Study Cake. Session <laughs> in March 2020. 19. We're 20. Oh. With a session called... Turn it on. With a session called... Does this child have an immunodeficiency? You already said it, Daddy. I know. Uh, by Anu Gueka. He's a very clever man. Why? He's just Thanks, a... Anu. Thanks, Anu. Enjoy. Whilst a few more people are um, logging in, the thing I thought we'd do is just maybe talk about your agenda, so you guys can just maybe type in to your Skype dialog box things you might want to cover when thinking about does this child have immunodeficiency? You're sat in your um, general paediatric clinic and a GP's referred you a kid. What are the kind of things you might want to cover? Yeah, so you've got when recurrent infections is a concern, we're definitely going to do that. (laughs) Red flags. Yeah, the interpretation of investigations is something that uh, uh, comes up quite a lot. Yeah, this is a relief. We'll do all of those things. When to refer, how many... Oh, yeah, this is good. Hannah Langford-Wood is going to be happy. Okay, great. So these are these all sound like uh, things things that are... Um, things that we'll cover. So, basically, it's we're going to talk about depending on time, eight to ten cases, and then we'll just end with some top tips. But really the thing to start with is the overview of the immune system. And this is the thing that really um, is the thing that fascinates immunologists and bores everyone else. But I think if you think about this really as a war, um, the war on microbes, it can be a quite helpful way of really hanging any clinical knowledge um, on as kind of coat hooks, where you've got kind of microbes ready to get in, but also many microbes in your body. You are more, there are more microbes in you than you. There are more bacterial cells in your body habitus than human cells. And the things that keep those out of sterile compartments are barriers. Um, and by barriers, I guess, I, I don't just mean epithelium and tissue, I mean cathelicidins and all of the um, antimicrobial proteins and peptides that sit within the barrier. And then really you've got the foot soldiers, and the foot soldiers really, um, they kind of just do as they're told, and they're a bit trigger happy. They just have their finger waiting and they will just shoot if they see a baddie. And the signalling in those molecules is quite simple. Um, you know, they don't, they don't necessarily have a tertiary education. Whereas macrophages and dendritic cells, you know, these guys have definitely been to college and they're particularly specialised at seeking out, spotting invaders, and then they're very good at communicating that information at to the more advanced parts of the immune system, such as T-cells. Now, T-cells, these are your kind of definite, um, you know, middle to upper management. They receive the information from the macrophages and dendritic cells and are able to process that in a useful way to direct the rest of the immune response. 
so much more intelligent. And really, this kind of is reflected in evolutionary phylogeny. T-cells only really appear in more advanced um, organisms. Macrophages and dendritic cells, I mean, houseflies have mononuclear phagocytes, but they don't have T-cells. And then B-cells really, I mean, I've, I've put tanks there, but they're more like ammunition factories, really. Uh, they're, in the, they're producing the bombs, the antibodies that are going to be dropped. I mean, it is a bit, it's slightly false to call an antibody a bomb because by itself, antibody binding doesn't necessarily kill. Um, uh, well, it, it, it doesn't kill. Um, anti when, as antibodies bind, uh, they signal the rest of the immune system to come and kill, so they opsonize. So really, if you understand this, you'll understand the next of the, the rest of the hour, and you can really, you can really envisage these roles in a kind of military um, military way. So case one, you've got a 15 year month old girl who's referred by a GP with frequent infections. What are some of the important things that you might want to assess? Feel free to type or speak. So you've got sites of infection, what type of infections, unusual sites or severity, how frequent, how severe. Is she thriving? So let's go back up. What, what, so people are saying how frequent. How frequent would worry you? What would be your threshold? I guess it depends what kind of, sorry, it's Annabelle. Um, I guess it depends what kind of um, infection you're talking about. A um, 15-month-old girl with twice-monthly viral infections, slightly less concerned about kind of severe bacterial infections maybe every month, for example. Okay, so we've drawn a distinction there between uh, maybe 24 viral infections a year and a few bacterial infections being, being bad, but 24 viral infections being more reassuring. So what you learn when you uh, take more of a history is that she's had eight respiratory infections, one gastrointestinal infection, she's had four courses of oral amoxicillin, one course of oral clothamycin, um, she's bottle fed, she's got two siblings under five years and she's thriving. Worried? Not as worried. <laughs> yeah, there's, a lot of people, there's a lot of people, there's, there's a deluge of no. Okay. So, Really, the data that underlines this and, and, and can really help you is shown on this graph, and I'll take you through this graph. Can you see my pointer waggling? No. Okay, so on the y-axis, you can see uh, respiratory illnesses per year, and on the x-axis, you can see kind of the ontogeny of age. And the thing I'd like you to follow first is the um, uh, filled-in dots, and that's the home care. This, these are children who are in home care. Um, and it's about 200 kids who were, who were studied over a period of 15 years. I don't think there's really been a better study than this, and it doesn't need to be repeated. And, and what you can see is the mean number of respiratory tract illnesses. The children who are at home with no siblings have the lowest. The children who are with the um, unfilled circles, so the line above that, who have siblings in school have a higher rate of infection, obviously, because their siblings are infecting them. But the really interesting group are the group in daycare. Now, these start off with the highest rate of infections, but their rate of infections tumbles because we are educating their immune system in terms of memory immunity. 
Well, actually, in terms of both innate and memory immunity. Now, I know as paediatricians and many of you as parents all completely recognise this. You all know this. But it's kind of good to see it in a graphical form. And, it, and it's helpful in terms of um, uh, reassuring parents. You've got mean 6.5 viral illnesses per year, but we all know that um, uh, they don't show the confidence intervals here in this, on this graph, but they're much wider than that. So, moving on, second case, we've got a four-year-old boy who's been admitted with periorbital cellulitis, and his mum asked him, has he got a weak immune system? What are some of the things you might want to explore? There. So Kate's asking, what does she mean by that? She doesn't know, she just wants to know if it's weak. Her grandma said, it might be weak. So yeah, it's just one episode. What other infections do you have? What, what are we thinking about, Hannah? Frequency of infection fits into the last slide. Growth is okay. Do we have a pathogen? Brilliant. So what, Tim, what kind of pathogens might, might worry you and what kind of pathogens might reassure you? Good, has she required antibiotics before? So, She's, there's no family history of infection or immune system problem. She's thriving. She's had no other infections requiring IV antibiotics. And she had typical phenotype of chickenpox at 13 months. So, well, I've set this up. I'm not going to ask you if you think that's normal. I've obviously set that up to be normal. But really the question that we're all kind of... Um, just reading these comments, PICU admissions, yeah, atypical bacteria. So I think the thing that we're all skirting around really is, is there any way clinically of predicting primary immune deficiency, okay, for these type of kids? I'm not talking about children who come in with a sticker on their head saying, I've got something very wrong with their immune system, right? They're quite easy to spot. I'm talking about this kind of thing where there might be concerns there might be stacked concerns. Can we spot those children now? Um, you may have heard of the 10 warning signs of primary immune deficiency. This was um, basically uh, launched in the 80s and 90s by the Jeffrey Medell Foundation. Jeffrey Medell was a boy with severe combined immune deficiency um, who sadly died of his disease and his parents started this foundation. And they funded a lot of the early work primary immune deficiency. And really, these 10 warning signs were developed by um, a group of fusty, fusty academics in a room, just sat around saying, well, well, you know, what do I think is um, an important feature of primary immune deficiency? So what, what the team that I worked for previously in Manchester did is they tried to see if these features actually were successful in predicting primary immune deficiency. So in this table, what you can see are across um, the across the kind of columns of the different types of primary immune deficiency, definable neutrophil B, B cell uh, primary immune deficiencies, complement T lymphocyte, and then all of these 10 features in the rows with, an, with a kind of a odds ratio. How predictive is it? And really what you can see is most of them are non-significant. They're very, very low. There's not, there's not much happening, except for positive family history, 
which makes you 18-fold more likely to have a primary immune deficiency. Two or more months of oral antibiotics with little effect or failure to thrive. So really, we should be calling them the three warning signs of primary immune deficiency. But actually, it's ridiculous, that this. And most, most of us in immunology find this ridiculous because you would, you would spot those children a mile off. Nay's asking, is that two months antibiotics and continuous use? Yes, exactly, it is. So it's ridiculous. You know, you would all spot those children from a mile off. So the answer really to this question is there is not a good evidence base for that can separate out the milder primary immune deficiencies. And that really leads us to the next concept. So let's move on, if there are no, no, no questions about that. So I've painted a bit of a disparate picture, but I'm hoping to get a bit more positive in a minute. So you've got a three-month-old boy, you're asked to recannulate, um, or I should say your registrar is asked to recannulate. Um, this child is post-surgical drainage of a peri perianal abscess. What might be your approach here to thinking about this case, apart from the politics of who should do the cannula? Tim's asking, can you check immunity when they're unwell? We're, let's cover that. We'll cover that with tests. Tim, I'm going to ask you to remind me if I don't do that when we get to tests. The cause of the perianal abscess, absolutely. And I think Rosie's hit the jackpot when she says this is an unusual infection at this age, more history. And then Hannah is keen to do some stewardship. Is this ready for an, is this kid ready for an oral switch? Yeah, absolutely. If you've drained it, why does he need IVs? So almost forgetting about the stewardship issue, the, the reason why they want IVs is because the consultant surgeon wants it and he won't listen to anyone. Good family history of recurrent boils. Excellent. So we're, all, we're along the right lines. Can anyone think of what part of the immune system in particular we might want to look at here? What does this smell of? It's quite hard, this, because you, you, your, your contribution's immortalised, isn't it? Yeah, Rob's right. This is the neutrophil issue. So the neutrophil count was, was 4.8 or 4,800 in, in old money. No, normal lymphocyte subset counts. No relevant family history. Any thoughts? Neutrophil function. Yeah. OK, so we've had someone talk about neutrophil function, neutrophil degranulation. Excellent. So I'm going to come back to that because that's the correct answer. But I'm going to bring in Tim's question, which was really about immune function testing. Now, it depends what you're testing for, um, I guess, Tim. And at this point, during an infection, if the, if the neutrophils were low, which is a possibility, this is a three-month-old. That's the key bit of the history. So really, this child hasn't been tested much by the experiment of life. And it is definitely abnormal to be having a process at this age. So if the neutrophils were low, that would be a worry. I agree, it could be reactive, but you would want to look at that more carefully. So you do a blood film, you'd look at other cell lines, and the, the child would probably end up with a marrow. And in the marrow, you would look for an absence of neutrophil precursors, and you'd be thinking about congenital neutropenia. In, normally, children with congenital neutropenia cannot mount a normal neutrophil count. So this, it doesn't 100% rule it out, but it effectively rules out congenital neutropenia. So normal lymphocyte subset counts, why are you doing those when obviously lymphocytes can do anything during an acute infection? Really, this is a three-month-old boy, and the main thing you want to think about is skin. 
could this be skin? And really, you don't even need lymphocyte subsets. The most predictive thing there is a lymphocyte count below 0.5 or below 500 cells um, in a young infant. And that requires immediate referral. Weekend, whatever, middle of the night, you know, we, you know, we'll be more than happy to talk to people about a young infant that you're worried about that has a total lymphocyte count of less than 0.5. Uh, we'll come back to the family history in a minute. So uh, a couple of people mentioned uh, neutrophil functional issues um, and they were right. And this child has chronic granulomasis disease, um, which is, so this is a real case, by the way, in Manchester. Um, um, and had actually had had two more perianal abscesses and had somehow been referred for safeguarding because there was worries about how this area of this child's anatomy was being inoculated. I mean, it, it, it was bonkers, really, before an immunologist got involved. Um, so this, this child had chronic granulomasis disease, which is uh, a failure of neutrophils to produce reactive oxygen species. Reactive oxygen species is the way that neutrophils kill catalase-positive organisms. So basically, what you get with chronic granulomasis disease is susceptibility to catalase-positive organisms. So the moment, you don't need to remember what those are, but the, the moment you say that book, you say a catalase positive organism to, to one of us, we immediately think about testing for CGD. Whether the child's three months, three years, or 13 years, we would think about that. And now just to come back to the family history, I told them there was no, I told, I told, told you there was no family history. Really, the problem there is we, and, and, and this happens all the time, we don't take proper family histories and that's partly a time thing. And, I, and this happens to me all the time in, in clinic. And people like Adam Finn come along and take a family history and then basically draw a kindred. So Kate's asking what's a catalase positive organism. Basically, it's, it's, it's organisms that respire, um, that need catalase to, to respire. And there's a particular group of those organisms. And actually, they're spread across different phyla and there isn't a really a good way of, of remembering them. So I'll give you some examples. It's things like Staph aureus, Burkholderia, Aspergillus. So it can be gram-positives, gram-negatives and fungi, and, but it's not all gram-positives, not all gram-negatives and, and, and fungi. And this is a perfect example of why it's good to phone a friend. I did, um, I did uh, have a mnemonic years ago for this that I've forgotten, uh, that I made up myself. Uh, that would have been helpful, wouldn't it? So um, you've got a clear disease phenotype in children with CGD of infections, pathogens, and non-infective features. I didn't talk about the Mendelian inheritance of this. This is obviously, uh, do you want to type in what you think, how this is inherited? There are two forms of CGD. Yeah, it could be dominant with variable, variable penetrance. It could be excellent, but the, we, we've got a, we've got a, uh, yeah, it's recessive. Uh, we've got a, a mother affected. Uh, there are ways, there are ways that obviously uh, females can be affected by excellent diseases, lionization, uh, Turner syndrome, etc., etc. But it's quite rare. You've got both sides of the family affected, so uh, that makes it less less likely to be dominant unless the, the same dominant mutation was in uh, both parents. But in a non-consanguineous kindred the most likely inheritance pattern we're seeing here would be recessive. So 
Chronic granulomatous disease is one of the prototypic primary immune deficiencies, but it may surprise you to learn that we are up to 430 genetically defined primary immune deficiencies now. It is absolutely frightening. My first job uh, working in immunology was in 2009. So literally, we've gone from about 150 to 430, and it is incredibly difficult to keep up. And what's the reason for this? Well, this is all next generation sequencing. You can see the curve up to about 2010, it's a steady increase. And then you'll probably see that the ramp of the curve ramps up after that. So really, this is just because all of those children that you know as pediatricians have an abnormal amino phenotype. They have abnormal infections. We now can do next generation sequencing. We can gene hunt and make novel discoveries. And you know, for those for those uh, prestigious laboratories, can publish in Nature and Science. And there's kind of quite a um, established way of doing that, really. So there's genetics. Um, the genetics must fit, i.e., the people with the genotype must have the abnormal. The person with the phenotype must have the abnormal genotype, and it mustn't occur in healthies. So that's about penetrance. Um, Rob mentioned autosomal dominant diseases with variable penetrance. That's a special case, actually, and we may come to that in a case later on. That we must obviously go from gene to protein. So we must show that if there is a genetic change associated with the disease, that you don't make the protein. And then finally, we must show that the, the, the function of that protein is relevant in the patient's presentation. So normally the pathway for, for taking a new gene and proving it and publishing it is about five years minimum. So, and it's a lot of work. It's normally at least one or two PhDs. So going back to the war on microbes, um, Kate's question about what organisms are affected really, uh, what organisms are patients with CGD susceptible to really is one of the key questions to explore here. And what I want to show you next is that same war on microbes with some of the commoner primary immune deficiencies. And you can see here really how they affect different parts of the immune system when the war on microbes can go wrong. I don't propose for one second going through this, but this is the kind of the way that our brain works when you're kind of talking to an immunologist on the phone. We're navigating this, trying to think, a bit similar to a neurologist, it's really similar to a neurologist, where is the lesion? That's the key thing we're trying to answer. So if you tell us that the patient has Staph aureus, Aspergillus, Burkholderius, Serratia, we're immediately thinking about neutrophil problems. If you tell us about the, well, well, go on, over to you. What do you think macrophages and dendritic cells are important in killing? Have a go. Macrophage and dendritic cell primary immune deficiencies are very rare. So it's things like, it's intracellular organisms. So it's mycobacteria. So these are weak mycobacteria, non-tuberculous mycobacteria, the stuff that you find in the soil and shouldn't cause disease. A patient with these, we will look at their uh, macrophage and dendritic cell immunity. Um, I'm excluding the non, the cervical non-tuberculous mycobacterial infections that are quite common that you guys may have seen. You know, those children with uh, big purple lymph nodes for months and months. 
that are often treated with antibiotics but actually uh, can be just left uh, and self-resolve. You may get you may get referrals from ENT about those guys. We're more than happy to see them. Uh, listeria species, although that's quite tricky because listeria is quite a, a pathogenic organism, so it can cause disease in anyone. But I would say invasive listeria disease in in someone that isn't in a neonate or a non-pregnant individual requires testing um, and also recurrent invasive salmonellosis. I mean obviously salmonella can cause disease in anyone. So what about T-cells? I must take suggestions for T-cell immunodeficiencies. Yeah. Definitely, mycobacteria. So, Sirabi is right, both virulent and non-virulent mycobacteria. We know that, obviously, from HIV, don't we? HIV is the perfect t living T-cell experiment. Anything else that patients with T-cell problems get? CMV, absolutely. In fact, all of the herpes viridii. So, you put EBV there, that's another member of the family. Um, herpes viruses, HHV6, pneumocystis, absolutely. So again, there isn't really a way of predicting these, but actually what all of these things have told us about is they tell us about the immune system because mice with T-cell problems aren't necessarily susceptible to CMV, but humans are quite different to mice. So what all of these things have done really is tell us about the immune system. Uh, candidate obviously is another important one. And B cells, Staph aureus, Strep pneumoniae, so encapsulated bacteria. If you don't have, if you can't make antibodies, encapsulated bacteria will be a problem. But also a couple of bizarre ones, Giardia, and who would have known Enterovirus? Obviously, if you have a, a neonate with Enterovirus, which is the commonest cause of Enterovirus meningitis, I would not be doing serum immunoglobulins and enumerating B cells in that child. I would just take that as being normal. Um, but if you had a six-year-old who came in with enteroviral meningitis, I would. I would definitely do that. So some of this is about the population. Okay, so this is your, well, let's skip past, well, so this is just a list of your different categories of primary immune deficiency and some of the genes described. You may find this app useful. This is an app you can download onto your phone. You can definitely get it on iPhone and Android. And we commonly use this in the clinic when we're trying to go from a clinical phenotype and we're playing guess the gene. It's quite a dangerous game that though, guess the gene in 2020. Um, what we often do is do next generation sequencing. So let's go get back to reality with a, with a case. Uh, we're about halfway through now. So uh, this is a five month old who's admitted with fever and circulatory shock. The CLP is less than one, and pneumococcus is isolated from her blood culture. Would you test for primary immune deficiency? You can just write yes or no, or you can give her you can give a reason. It'd be probably good on this if we could hold answers so that everyone could answer at once. Probably not, no. Okay. Oh, Louise, Louise, Louise wants to know about the FBC results. What? What do you want to know about the FBC results, Louise? Annabelle wants to wait for another episode. White cell count, neutrophil count. So, okay, yeah. Anything else you can do without jumping into testing that might help you? 
thinking about the amount of times I've blushed in front of Professor Adam Finn, Professor Peter Arkwright, Professor Tracy Hustle. Yeah, absolutely. Take a family history. Just think of me looking like an idiot. And you will always remember to take a family history. So let's talk a little bit about this. This is quite... We'll spend five minutes on these. Tim's asking, does she respond uh, clinically to antibiotics and, yeah, and, and immunizations? Let's talk about all of this. Now, what I want to try and convince you here is that we should test for streptococcus pneumonia. We should test for primary immune deficiency in any child with invasive pneumococcal disease. In, well, no, in most children with invasive pneumococcal disease in 2020. And there's a few reasons for that, really. Uh, and I'll go into more detail into who exactly we should test. Um, and the reason for this really is that immunity is a moving target. We've interrupted transmission of the 13 commonest serotypes causing invasive pneumococcal disease. And that's obviously with pneumococcal conjugate vaccine. The way that, that those vaccines work is not via direct protection. The immunized population interrupt transmission of these bugs protecting the whole population. So that means if you get disease with a vaccine serotype now, it suggests that the low that you are vulnerable to that disease regardless of the low transmission of that disease. Uh, Sarabi's hit the jackpot there with the CRP less than one, but we won't get to that for another couple of slides. So that the first thing really to appreciate is that in 2020, we've almost eradicated disease to vaccine serotypes. Well, you might say, what if this is a non-vaccine serotype? Does that worry you less? And it probably does worry me less. It probably does. But this is a five-month-old girl as well and should be at least partially protected by maternal antibody. So there's a few reasons here why this worries me. The CRP less than one definitely is odd in a child with fever and circulatory shock. So the next question is, well, how am I going to approach this? What tests am I going to do? And really to understand that, it's understanding how pneumococcus gets into the bloodstream. So the first thing is, obviously, you've got a virus, your nasal epithelium, nasopharyngeal epithelium is all inflamed and red and nasty. And the pneumococcus that you've just acquired from whatever, the sister licking your face or snot all over the toys in the nursery is allowed to translocate from the nasopharynx into the bloodstream. But the main thing that stops it, stops that from happening is immunoglobulin at mucosal surfaces. We have resident B cells sat in our epithelium producing an antibody that stop bugs from getting into the bloodstream. Okay, so the, blood's get, the bugs go into the bloodstream. Um, following translocation, strep pneumonia is then killed by phagocytes. So you can see, this is the war on microbes, kind of in real life it's happening in front of us. So neutrophils will kill strep pneumonia. Complement may be important in opsonizing and improving killing. Opsonization comes from the word improvement. And then, obviously, you, you know, to, to, to mount a, a more sophisticated, specific uh, immune response, you're going to need uh, the foot soldiers to talk to the general, the T-cell of your immune system, and 
to you, for you to produce the correct fit of neutralizing antibodies. Okay, so that means what you need to test are antibody levels, specific antibody levels to pneumococcus to see if they've responded to vaccines. You need to measure neutrophil level in the blood, i.e. a neutrophil count, and you need to assess the complement pathway. And really you can see here the primary immune deficiencies that pop up, therefore. So children who can't make antibodies, such as X-linked agammaglobinemia, innate signaling defects where children can't mount an inflammatory response and their monocytes and neutrophils are just unable to do that. C2 deficiency, which is a complement def deficiency, and asplenia come in here where you can't, you can't, produ you can't produce complement, uh, effective complement, um, and obviously HIV and T-cell problems. So that really means that what you, need, what you would need to do here is you need to make sure the child is HIV negative. You, we would do a splenic ultrasound to make sure the child doesn't have congenital asplenia. We would measure at serum immunoglobulins. The caveat here is the age. Difficult to interpret this. Suddenly the child's gone from four, five to four months, apologies. And obviously the concept here in, in interpreting immunoglobulin levels is you would, you would, you would, you would you um, acquire a lot of immunoglobulin in your second trimester of pregnancy, but this this wanes. Now the kinetics of waning is different for different children, and also is different um, is different. Rob's asking how many of these investigations will come back acutely when she's in. Almost none of them, and I would do most of these uh, at a clinic appointment. So that's a great question. I wouldn't be doing any of these acutely. Um, the main thing acutely is to get this child better, um, and then I'll see them in a you know a month or two, whenever you've got. And the key thing here is just thinking when, whenever they're not inflamed, uh, kind of thing. I mean, some of them you can do. You would do a HIV test, obviously, as an inpatient. That's quite an easy thing to do. Um, but you can see the kinetics of antibody waning here um, are. Um, you know, kind of show you that you've got no passively transferred maternal IgG by nine months. That isn't true. You know, it just depends, really. Uh, different children, um, also when they're born preterms, for example, have very little passively transferred maternal IgG because they didn't get a chance to get it. It's actively pumped across the placenta in the second trimester. Um, right, I'll come back to Sarabi's question in a second. So at four months, it's difficult to interpret, but certainly in an older child, you would beware a reduced immunoglobulin. And there are normograms, because um, just beware that your lab might give you a reference range for adults. So again, if you ever, if you ever want interpretation for those kind of things, be, 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 um, uh, you're absolutely welcome to write us a letter, drop us an email, and, 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 and we'll help you interpret those. Why might you beware a high IgG um, with suspected autoimmunity? So we've kind of moved here into um, interpretation of immunoglobulins, slightly away from the case, actually. So you're just thinking really about um, uh, any kind of autoimmune disease where a monoclonal antibody, i.e. you push out a load of anti-XYZ, whatever that is. The prototypic one is SLE. Um, and um, it's one of those kind of heroic diagnoses. You might see a child with recurrent fevers, rash, 
um, a low white cell count, but a really high IgG. Um, we, we'd be happy to talk about that, but the, the, you know, the, the correct professional in the Southwest would be Professor A.V. Ramanan. Um, he, would, he would immediately ask for anti-double-stranded DNA antibodies. So IgG subclass measurement is relatively useless. We're probably going to stop doing that in Bristol. So IgG subclass immunodeficiencies are not really a real entity. Um, so uh, sorry to disappoint but anyone if they're fans of those entities. Beware of a high IgM. So the, the hyper-IgM syndromes is something you may remember from membership exams. And serum IgA measurements is relatively useless. Uh, you'll see that and you'll see low IgA, specific IgA deficiency, again, isn't really a proper immune deficiency and we don't need to see those children. We, you know, there aren't many things that I'm going to say we don't need to see, but we don't need to see those things. Um, if you're having trouble reassuring a parent because they've read garbage online, we can send you a standard letter that we sometimes give to uh, parents to kind of uh, reassure them. Um, the reason why I serum IgA measurements is relatively useless is because IgA um, uh, isn't in the serum, it's in mucosal tissues and you can't, it's not easy to measure it there. Uh, so you're measuring the wrong compartment. So going back to Sir Abhi's question for this case, uh, what, how soon after recovery you can test them? Obviously you can test it, acutely you can test it for H if, if there's, um, if the child's HIV serology and um, PCR, you can do, uh, you can check if there's a spleen acutely. Now, I would do immunoglobulins acutely, but I'd also repeat them at a convalescent stage, probably. Um, in terms of white cell counts, neutrophils and lymphocytes, again, I do them acutely, but I do them convalescently. The reason why you don't know if they're reactive, if they're low, um, so it, all it does is it, it well, really makes sure you see them as an outpatient. It ensures follow-up. Okay, I don't, I wouldn't worry, I wouldn't, and, and you will have measured the white cell count anyway. Obviously, the form of is coming this sick. Uh, vaccine responses, obviously, um, are you can do those at any point because that you know all your all your measuring there is the amount of, of uh, antibody in the serum. Um, neutrophil function is something that you wouldn't test acutely. Um, you have to test that because it's a functional test. You're looking to see if the neutrophil either degranulates or produces reactive oxygen species. So that's something. But we do we do all nearly all of that testing in Bristol. I know that Plymouth can do it. Uh, Claire Bethuna has set that up there. Um, but um, uh, we we like to do that here in Bristol. So we you know we'll do that for you. Um, so. Uh, we want to talk about investigations um, and, um, you know, uh, I guess we've covered this. So we've talked about full blood counts, congenital neutropenias. We've talked about respiratory burst function. Um, another primary immune deficiency that can present with a high white cell count is something called leukocyte adhesion deficiency. This is where neutrophils can't get into the vessels uh, and you'll get a high white cell count. And again, that's something we test for in Bristol. Lymphocytes, again, number is important. Um, we look at subsets. Uh, we look at subsets of subsets. And we also look at, pro of, uh, at T cell function, uh, which can be important in some of the newer primary immune deficiencies. I'll just briefly mention TREX, which is at the bottom of this second column. 
this is something you might hear because um, uh, we're going to start testing for SCID as part of uh, the newborn screening programme, um, blood spot screening programme, and TREX, or T-cell receptor excision circle, circles, is the test for that. Again, that will bypass most of the time um, secondary paediatrics, and we'll go directly from the labs to an immunologist if it is positive, but we would obviously inform the um, general practitioner in secondary um, paediatrician if we make a diagnosis of SCID. Uh, that's not happening right now. It may start in September, um, and the pilot areas in Manchester and London, but Bristol's pretty soon on the list after that in terms of rollout. So watch this space. Um, immunoglobulin testing we've talked about. Just another brief thing is that people can make antibodies against cytokines. So uh, that's, that's not a good thing to do, obviously. And complement. So that's the last thing. Um, that's the last important one, really. So Sarabi and Tim's questions, what infections can you do acutely? Um, complement is something that you would never do acutely because it's a functional test. Um, complement is also something that is quite prone to error from sampling. Any functional test, if you take it and it sits around or it's not quite in the right bottle or it's not the right amount. So again, if you're thinking a child has complement disorder, we'll do the testing. Uh, Tim uh, is asking, is MBL of any use? That's a great question. So MBL for primary immune deficiency people sits in the same pool as IgA and IgG subclass. It's, it's a false entity. It does not exist. That said, Tim, and you've done a respiratory job, so you'll know that the respiratory physicians do favour doing it. There is some weak evidence uh, from two Lancet papers published around eight or nine years ago that MBL, low MBL can be um, important in patients with um, uh, bronchiectasis. So Mano's, um, MBL stands for Mano's Binding Lectin. And thanks, Tim. And um, okay. children with bronchiectasis and CF who are Mano's Binding Lectin deficient seem to have more exacerbations. But what does that, I mean, does that really make a difference in terms of management? We can't give them mannose binding lectin like we can replace immunoglobulin. So, um, we, you know, I never test for it, and, and, and most people, most immunologists don't test for it. So I'm going to skip past these slides, but I think these are good takeaway slides. This was from um, uh, one of my consultants when I was in Manchester, Stephen Hughes, who's an immunologist there when he was a registrar. And he, he wrote this wonderful article um, and put together these lovely tables. And it can just sort of help uh, orientate you um, in terms of investigating. And he divides this investigation into children who've got recurrent sinus pulmonary or pyogenic infections and patients that have abnormal intracellular infections, such as viruses, salmonella, mycobacteria. So let's move on to the case. We've got about, I guess, 15 minutes left. Um, although, probably it'd take me a good signal. I'm happy to go in for another 20 minutes if people, if other people are happy, but other, other, you know, if you've got other things to do, then that's fine. Um, so um, this is a 13-month-old um, girl who was admitted with fever and circulatory shock. Her white cell counts 7.2, um, neutrophils 3.1, and I see, oh, this is the same case as before. Yeah, we've gone back to the same case as before. And what's the thing that I haven't told you so far for this case? Okay, so there's lots of people happy to continue. What haven't I told you about this girl? Her age has changed again, I'm sorry. Yeah, Nay's right, family history, family history, family history, family history. Think of Annie. 
think of Annie looking stupid, family history. So you can see here this quite aggressive pedigree uh, with lots of deaths. The only real way to take a good family history when you're thinking about primary immune deficiency is to draw a pedigree. And I think you have to go two generations, i.e. you have to go to the, the, the grandparents to do it properly. It takes 10 minutes. It's really laborious and um, it's the only good way to do it. But you will identify children you will have already missed. You might only do it once in your entire career, but that would be enough. And I'll convince you that with that with this case. So this case had um, uh, an IRAC4 mutation, um, and this again is a real case. I've changed the age slightly at the presentation, but it's a real case of a, of a child we looked after in um, in Manchester. Now, IRAC4 deficiencies are a novel primary immune deficiency, and this involves this involves a signalling problem in your in your innate cells, your neutrophils and mononuclear phagocytes, basically where they don't, they can't see the infection. So going back here, the the the, the neutrophils the, and the bar, the and the the, the uh, macrophages and dendritic cells that really are the trigger happy cells of the immune system can't do what they're supposed to do. They can't even see that there is this strep pneumonia. And these patients are selectively uh, susceptible, if you see the bottom right corner, to strep pneumonia, Staph aureus, and Pseudomonas infections. And the characteristic thing about these children is they come in half dead, but they haven't mounted a fever, and they haven't mounted a CRP response. So the kindred that I looked after in Manchester um, uh, basically, uh, the first child was admitted and sadly succumbed um, and died very soon after admission in the PICU at Royal Manchester Children's Hospital. But the older child was on penicillin prophylaxis and actually, because we were able to screen the second child for this disease, which is, by the way, autosomally, autosomal recessively inherited, so this was just quite unfortunate that in three children, two were affected. You know, that's, you know, normally autosomal recessive diseases, it's a one in four. Um, and this was a Caucasian outbred kindred. You know, it wasn't a highly consanguineous kindred kind of thing. A again, highlighting why family history is important. Uh, the second child um, was on penicillin prophylaxis and was fine. So this is a life-saving diagnosis. You will save the sibling. And you might even save the infected index child. You, the, the key intervention here is penicillin prophylaxis for life. Or amoxil if they're younger and can't palate oral phenoxymethylpenicillin. So after that sobering case, case six, a uh, 12-year-old boy presents with confusion and fever, has a normal CT brain, has a mild pleocytosis, normal CSF, normalish CSF protein, well, normal CSF protein and normal CSF glucose. What might, you, what might be your thoughts there? Yeah, encephalitis. They stand still for the LP. Yeah, yeah, HSV, yeah. I mean, and Nate's absolutely right. You know, encephalitis is the, is, is the, is the, is the, it's the perfect thing, really, where you need to have a surgical sieve. You know, this could be anything, couldn't it? It could, you know, it could be, I don't know, it could be Kawasaki disease. It could be anything. You know, it could be um, 
So Rob's asking the type of white cells, that's a good question. Um, and my approach to this really is it's interesting if it's if it fits. So yeah, if this was lymphocytes, that fits with HSV. But if it's neutrophils, it doesn't mean it's not HSV. Because essentially what they do is a cytosine spin and they stain. So there's, there's inaccuracies in staining, even though neutrophils and, and, and lymphocytes look quite different under a microscope when, when you've done a game set or a H&A on them. They look very different. Um, regardless of that, the diseases don't seem to read the textbooks. So um, it's, it's a bit like a, a normal chest x-ray in a child with pneumonia. You know, we as doctors just kind of talk our way around it, don't we, and sort of say, oh, well, that's radiological lag time. And the same with the CRP. I, you know, we, we have a similar approach to looking at CSF, clear cytosis differential. You know, if it fits, then great, pat on the back. If it doesn't, well, you know, it, you know, it, uh, you know, it's it's the um, uh, vagaries of the fact of the disease. So, um, was the child systemically well or unwell at the time of presentation? So, HSV encephalitis. This is a, a, a naughty bug, and it can really present in a very pleiotropic fashion. It is a mimic, and it can do whatever it wants. And particularly in older children and adolescents, you can just have mild confusion. Now, what I want to try and um, convince you of now is that HSV encephalitis in 2020 is a genetic disease, okay? We all meet HSV. All adults have seroconverted and become HSV IgG positive, okay? We just meet this bug around and about. So if you get invasive herpes disease, i.e. herpes encephalitis, or herpes hepatitis, there's probably something wrong with your immune system. And those lesions with the, with the events of next generation sequencing have been located to the TLR pathway, particularly the TLR3 pathway that you can see here, that you don't really need to be, uh, you know, you, you, there's no point in almost remembering that, it's just really the concept. But I'm going to try and take this concept a bit further, really, to ask, well, that might be all well and good, Anu, but, but so what? Is this really important? Do I need to worry about this? If I see a child with herpes simplex encephalitis, do we, do we need to worry about these things? And I told you, uh, I'll come back to Kate's question in a minute. Um, I told you about... Um, uh, the last case that invasive pneumococcal disease is something we should be investigating. And I convinced you of that by that awful IRAC4 deficiency because there's something we can do about it. We can put the children on penicillin prophylaxis. Now, herpes simplex encephalitis is a different kettle of fish. The answer there is we don't know. We know that acyclovir prophylaxis is important, but after you've had this invasive herpes, most children, even with primary deficiencies, seroconvert. And you're probably not as susceptible to a second episode, so you're not at a higher risk. So then you think about the siblings. But the problem there with the siblings is, again, there's no trial to show that putting them on long-term acyclovir prophylaxis is actually effective. Most of us would at least think about a primary immune deficiency um, and maybe do some basic immune fu function testing, okay? Um, Kate's asking, can't you have it in primary HFSV? Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. Most most children that get invasive herpes get it um, as their prime. It's the first time they've ever met HSV. So this is this is a slightly unclear area, and it's because um, it's because really we don't know enough about trying to prevent disease in these patients. Do they all have a problem with their immunity? So uh, yeah, let's come to that with the next slide. So. There's a prevailing, the key question there is what do we mean by a, pro, a, a problem with immunity? And this is like a key, a key point really, you know, um, that it's nice that we've built up to, which is that immunity really, um, and problems in immunity go right from the left side of this graph with the single gene defects that are really bad things, really, really clear lesions in your immune system that affect protein expression and a non-redundant pathway of your immune system. And these have a high penetrance. They present early in childhood, way before puberty, usually in the first year. So, so diseases that present later in life that have a more complex and polygenic predisposition. And the problem with HSV is it kind of spans single gene defects to more polygenic complex predisposition. So the answer to the question is that I think at the moment, okay, and this is a an evolving field, HSV immunity, um, that they do all have a problem with their immunity, but the nature of that problem might be a single gene defect or it might be a more complex polygenic predisposition that we, we definitely do not understand at the moment. Our understanding of polygenic and complex predisposition really is very poor, and that's just because of the cost of next generation sequencing means we can't do large cohorts of these kids. Okay? So, if you just kind of plot this really on a graph and you look on the y-axis and you can see if just thinking about how did how have these diseases persisted within our population if they're so deleterious then surely the genes wouldn't be passed on but what we find is that autosomal recessive conditions um, where obviously the allele frequency is low because you just have to be unlucky enough to meet that person who's got the same recessive allele. Those have a big effect on immune phenotype because it's not that common when the allele frequency is low. I mean, cystic fibrosis has a relatively common allele frequency um, and there are all kinds of theories as to why that allele has, has persisted, such as heterozygotes, the CF might have a survival advantage. But certainly for primary immune deficiencies, they're just, they're just around. And obviously those allele frequencies are amplified in populations that are geographically segregated, such as Ashkenazi Jews, who um, originated from a very small founder population, or in the populations that are highly consanguineous. Or, I mean, the toxic combination would be both. So some of the valleys in Pakistan, uh, the valley villages where consanguineities very commonly practiced, but they're also in a geographically isolated population. These diseases are incredibly common. And so if you contrast that with the more common diseases um, there, where the allele frequency can sometimes be quite common um, and they have a smaller effect on immune phenotype. So away from all that technical buzz, back to real life with case seven, an 11 year old boy, um, any point in talking about this? Yeah, we'll talk about this. This child, this child had some of you who work in Bristol Children's Hospital might remember this patient. Uh, this this uh, dear child of ours had um, autoimmune phenomenon characterised by autoimmune neutropenia, 
have also inflammatory phenomenon such as inflammatory balances and recurrent fever and chronic neutropenia that was refractory to GCSF treatments. I'm not asking for a diagnosis, but what, um, what you, yeah, Rob's right, <laughs> yeah, 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 this, this child did need a transplant, and a transplant would have saved this child's life, um, but we didn't, we didn't get that done in time. I'll come back to Annabelle's question. So basically, this child had disorder, a disorder called ADA2 deficiency, and really, the, the concept here I wanted to what I want to just introduce you to is that we're now encouraged, increasingly recognizing that the immune system, it's not quite as simple as loss of function mutations give you um, uh, infections, like on the left side, that LOF, and the GOF, gain of function mutations, they give you, they give you um, autoimmunity or autoinflammatory things. Actually, depending on the gene, gain-of-function mutations can give you both autoimmunity, autoinflammatory disease and immunodeficiency and loss of function likewise. Immunity is tightly regulated and any perturbation can almost cause anything um, in a way. And because we're doing more and more next generation sequencing, I think we're realising that the phenotype of these disorders is far broader. What does this mean at the bedside for the general paediatrician. I think it just means that we're, we're playing guess the gene a lot less now. Um, and if someone has a really clear phenotype and it's obvious what's wrong with them, you know, like a kid with, you know, I talked about about the kid with perianal abscesses. That's fine. But many of these children, such as this child, it was very unclear to us. So we didn't get the diagnosis of ADA2 deficiency until, until it was too late and this child died. Um, and there were lots of lessons for our team, very painful lessons for our team to learn from this case. Um, and really, this this is a lovely thing. I've got a picture of this on my in my in, 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 in my wall, um, uh, both at the university and in the clinic, because I find it so helpful. Um, that really, what the re the concepts now that Andy Jennery came up with about ten years ago, really, is that. Infection, allergy, malignancy, auto-inflammatory disorders, and autoimmunity, they all cross over. These are all perturbations of immunity. So I'm going to pause there for a second. I'm just going to come back to Annabelle's question. What would you investigate in the HSV encephalitis teenager? I would not necessarily do anything. You'll obviously have a total white cell count. And um, I would refer to us drop us a letter or an email. We don't necessarily need to see the patient um, and just describe the case, uh, and we would have a roundtable discussion. In a region such as the Southwest, um, we should be seeing about one or two um, herpes and cephalitis cases a year. Uh, and Kate's asking, do you give prophylaxis? No. That's not sta standard practice. Uh, no, uh, ignore that. For the f uh, six months, for a uh, neonate, six to 12 months for a neonate is standard practice. For an older child, again, I would ask us, there are divergent views amongst our team about that. But for a neonate with invasive herpes infection that normally obviously is either vertically acquired or can be horizontally acquired from a, you know, a family member with a cold sore, we would give six to 12 months. Does headache and drowsiness count as encephalitis? No, that would, that would more fit with encephalopathy because it's a clinical syndrome. Encephalitis would be, uh, is a, 
um, a, a test-based diagnosis, so you need to show CNS inflammation, so either a CSF pleocytosis or increased signal on an MRI. Hannah's asking, do you think we'll move to doing more whole genome sequencing as first-line investigation? Yeah, absolutely, Hannah, like, absolutely, yeah. Um, and that is, that's the big lesson really from 100,000 genomes. The big, the big hold-up here is the bioinformatics um, and capacity. Um, uh, kind of thing. Patients with primary HSV can have headaches. Should we LP all of these? Oh gosh! So now we're in the that this is, we're in the arena of um, clinical uncertainty and what general paediatricians are paid for. Um, I would go as as you're suggesting, Kate, for the more confused ones. Um, if it's like a 12 year old with a bit of a headache, I might watch and wait. And if it's uh, if if I think that this is true encephalopathy, i.e. encephalopathy being defined um, as change in GCS, change in conscious level or change in behaviour, then I would help him and, and put on a cyclovir. Nate's right, yeah, yeah, you're defining encephalopathy, good. Right, so uh, let's end with my top tips. Frequent typical viral infections are normal, and now you can kind of graphically realise that really, particularly for the child who has is, is attending daycare or nursery, um, and how you can reassure those child that, that those children are going to get educated uh, sooner than children who don't go to nursery, uh, kind of thing. Um, uh, most of us have to tell tell ourselves that, don't we, as working parents, that the warning signs of immunodeficiency are definitely not exhaustive. They don't even work, those 10 warning signs. So I'm glad if you've not heard of them because they're rubbish. Um, we've laboured that in detail. And the, the threshold to test is changing and the key thing there is pneumococcal disease. So the members of our team that don't necessarily totally agree that we should be looking at all children with pneumococcal disease, okay? Uh, invasive pneumococcal disease because they remember all the children in the 90s with invasive pneumococcal disease that just got it because of bad luck. That people are getting used to the new era of pneumococcal conjugate vaccine and interruptive transmission. As kind of a practical take home there, I think if a child is above two and has evasive pneumococcal disease, I would definitely be testing, definitely. I think the less than two, particularly for a non-vaccine serotype, you could afford to, to not and watch and wait. But if, if you had a five-year-old with a non-vaccine serotype or a vaccine serotype, I'd be testing. The vaccine serotype, by the way, is automatically done on all invasive pneumococcal isolates and will come from Collendale to you within uh, sort of six weeks to two months. The question then would be, do you put them on penicillin prophylaxis until then? We don't tend to. Um, interpretation of tests is obviously often age and context dependent. Um, and we've talked a bit about the different contexts of acute infection, age, interpretation of immunoglobulin levels. And really that we're learning, in, in, we learn an incredible amount about the nature of the immune system. We are all living experiments. And when things go wrong, it helps us understand about our primary immune deficiencies. 
and we've we've kind of uh, defined some of the false primary immune deficiencies, IgG subclass deficiencies, IgA deficiency, managed binding lectin deficiency. <coughs> we talked about the increasing spectrum and the impact of next generation sequencing, and then the genetic theory of infectious diseases. And really, I didn't I don't think I really I laboured what that was. Sean Lorraine Casanova is the real um, purveyor of this therapy this disease. And he would take this forward to saying that every infection we ever get and every single abnormal phenotype that we get is in some way genetically mediated. It's a completely different way of looking at infection. And really, you can, you can, the bug is important and the strain of the bug or the strain of the RSV um, and your preceding uh, um, immunity. Um, but um, I think um, I think also um, what's important to consider here is the um, the sort of um, uh, how do I want to say this without being misleading. Put it this way: you've got I don't know rhinovirus that comes into your household, and you get a, a sore throat. Your colleague gets a um, your 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 wife or husband or partner gets a runny nose and your kid gets a raging fever. Why is that? That is partly due to your experience, your the amount of memory immunity, but it's also we know that there are polygenic traits that define those. We just don't know what those are yet. And that again, early intervention can be life-saving. Things like penicillin prophylaxis, um, things like immunoglobulin replacement therapy, and then obviously the big gun of um, immunoglobulin of uh, bone marrow transplants. So any any other questions? I hope that's been useful. Um, and um, uh, thank you all for dialing in. Um, any 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 kind of questions? So Rob's asking, I was part of the Star Clinic peer review where they said they swab huge numbers of girls with thrush, but they virtually see they virtually never see it in children who aren't in nappies. How how often is non-invasive fun fungus a sign of immune deficiency? Good question. So it's very rarely a sign of immune deficiency, and you you'll spot it. So you won't get it with like recurrent thrush. Um, um, won't be it. These are the kids who have that horrendous. Um, uh, Candida, um, uh, candidal uh, skin infections. I think I've got a picture of one actually here. So can you see that those that candida nail disease um, there? That's the kind of um, that's the kind of um, uh, abnormal candida, you know, that interests you. And there's a name for that. We call it chronic muco chronic mucocutaneous candidiasis or CMC, rather than the kind of nappy. Um, that we uh, commonly see in um, uh, in girls. Anything else? Great. Well, I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna dial out. If anyone, um, if anyone uh, wants to ask any questions or anything, I've got my email address there. People are happy. I'm happy to email you resources or anything. Anything people people need. Rob's asking: Are there any investigations of primary deficiency? function that's worth doing in a general piece thing. So um, perhaps child with mild recurrent bacterial lower respiratory tract infection. Yeah, good question. So the things I'd do there would be total lymphocyte enumeration, total neutrophil 
enumeration, so you'll get that in a full blood count. Serum immunoglobulins and vaccine responses. Um, the vaccine responses some people might argue against, and you have to interpret those with caution. So if this is a seven-month-old who's had now, now only one dose, actually, uh, of uh, pneumococcal conjugate vaccine, I was about to say two, but only, only one dose now because the uh, immunisation schedule has changed, um, they should have some antibody responses. So let's not make them nine months, let's make them 15 months where they've had two doses. They should make antibodies. But if you did that same test, in a nine-year-old, they might have waned. So if you don't have good antibody responses to vaccine serotypes of pneumococcus at nine years, that's not abnormal, and everyone wanes at a different rate. So that's quite hard to interpret. So you might choose to boost them and then measure them. And the reason to boost them isn't really to clinically protect them, although that won't do them any harm. It's to see if they can respond to it. Um, but we normally do that. Uh, Tim's asking just pneumococcal vaccine response. Great question. So the different vaccines tell you about different parts of the immune system. So pneumococcal conjugate vaccine, um, conjugate vaccines like Haemophilus and pneumococcus tell you quite a lot about the way T and B cells work together. In contrast, something like tetanus vaccine, really, I mean, anything could um, uh, respond to. I mean, I remember um, one of my old bosses telling me that um, tetanus, toxoid vaccines such as tetanus, horseshoe crabs can respond to. So that would be a real, uh, a real um, uh, worry if you if you didn't respond to tetanus uh, vaccine. MMR, because it's live, tells you about the T cell part of your immune system because it's because it's a virus and it's live. Tells you about the um, uh, uh, adaptive part of your immune system, in particular T cells. So, for example, a child with skid or heavily immunosuppressed HIV, we would not give a, um, uh, a live vaccine to. Um, so, Rosie's asking, we've got a three-week-old on the ward with likely meningococcal manage. Oh, God. Uh, uh, two CRPs less than one. Is this normal in an ENA? Yeah. So, yeah, that's a good question. So, um, I mean, number one, meningococcal meningitis in a three-week-old is quite unusual because you've got a bit of maternal antibody at that point. So that's quite unusual. So, yeah, I think we would want to maybe uh, uh, chat to you about that case. So I'd be thinking about complement disorders at that age. I'd want to know what serotype of meningococcus it was. Um, I would be doing, obviously, a total, lymph total neutrophil, total lymphocyte count uh, there. Um, uh, immunoglobulins will be meaningless in the three-week-old because they're all maternal. Um, and in terms of if you're thinking about signalling disorders and CRPs less than one, as far as I know, IRAC4 and MyD88s aren't associated with invasive meningococcal disease, but that has the smell of something unusual, the three-week-old. If you just said three-month-old three and it was group B, I might be thinking, okay, this is bad luck, but three-week-old. So that's quite a good uh, live case. Thanks, Rosie. Tim's asking, would, do you need to respond to five out of three serotypes? So this is one of those questions that's good because this is kind of like, I wouldn't set a very clear barometer. Roughly, we do say five out of 13 and we call a, um, a, a, um, a, a good response being um, above 0 0.35 micrograms per litre for um, uh, pneumococcal vaccine titers. But actually, this is all about pretest probability. So if I had a child who responded to six, but I was really worried about, 
I might be worried about the way that their T cell and B cells um, talk to each other. But if I had a child who'd had a load of viral or respiratory tract infections and only responded to three, I, I might say that that's okay, kind of thing. So I think uh, it's a good thing. To, it's a good thing to remember five, but it's all about pretest probability as well. Thanks. Thanks so much. Rosie, if you could contact the, uh, the um, infectious diseases and immunology team through switchboard, if you ask the team at any point, it doesn't even need to be really be done now, kind of thing. But the key question I'd have there is, is this a kid who needs to go on penicillin prophylaxis after you've got them over their meningococcal meningitis? Thanks so much. I think it works quite well, this Skype stuff. So I'm going to dial out now. And um, thanks so much. Have a nice rest of the day. For those of you at the Children's Hospital, we're doing a grand round at one o'clock on uh, COVID-19. So it'd be great to see you all there. Uh, we've got an exciting program. Thanks.